It's so great to be up here with you guys this morning, and after months of planning and anticipation, we're finally here. And we just want to thank all you guys to start, because we have been so blessed to be just really taken care of by you guys. We have not been left in need over anything over our time here. In fact, most of the time we've been downright spoiled. So we are so excited to start our work with such a loving and hardworking group of people. And I pray that God blesses our work here together. But as we begin our lesson this morning, I want to ask you a few questions. What does it mean to be a Christian? And what does it mean to say that you're a Christian? And are those even really different questions at all? And if you don't know the answers to those questions, that's absolutely fine. Because luckily, Jesus has already answered them for us in several places in the scriptures. But today we're going to look at an especially pertinent story in Matthew chapter 21. If you would, please turn there. I guess if you already know the answers to those questions, you can just leave. No, I think it'll be a helpful reminder for all of us. So in Matthew chapter 21, we're near the end of Jesus' time on earth. In the last chapter, chapter 20, he foretold of his death for the third time that we have recorded in the book of Matthew. And we're only four chapters before his betrayal and his last days on earth. So we're right here at the end of the gospel And Matthew 21 is a really interesting chapter to me because it starts with the high point of Jesus' time on earth. Right at the beginning here, we have the story of the triumphal entry. That's the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 21. And while we have no idea how many people attended this entry, we know that there was a very large crowd praising Jesus. They praised Jesus as a prophet as a king, as the son of David, and some even the Messiah from the Lord. And it's a very beautiful scene and a powerful scene. It seems that finally the people understand who Jesus is. So how do we get from there to them crucifying him in just a few days? I think our main passage today and some of the other verses that we're going to look at might actually help answer that question. So if you would, let's go down to Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. And as we read these verses, I want you to think about these questions again. What does it mean to be a Christian? And what does it mean to say that you're a Christian? Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 28. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, And he went to the first and said, son, go work out in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, that being the scribes and Pharisees, the first. And Jesus said to them, 
Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So that's our story for today. The passage is a short, kind of simple passage. But I think if we really take the time to dive into what Jesus is saying here, we'll find some really challenging principles that will be helpful for all of us. So first off, I want to start with addressing who the parable is talking to. And I kind of already spoiled that a little bit. But I think for us to fully grasp the meaning here, and the best way to really see what Jesus is talking about, we need to look at who the parable is aimed at. And I think the best way to do that is to look briefly at the rest of the chapter. So as I said, uh, in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, there's the triumphal entry. This time where the people really rallied around Jesus and celebrated him as a prophet and a teacher. And some even celebrated him as this messianic king. And while that's a wonderful scene, not everyone was as excited about this as we are. If you remember in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, in Luke chapter 19, you don't have to turn there because we're just going to look at two verses. Uh, the Pharisees don't react very well to the crowd celebrating Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, verse 39, the Pharisees cry out to Jesus as the crowd is all around him saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And do you remember what Jesus responds with? Verse 40 says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The crowds are praising God. And even if they didn't, all creation praises God. Yet, the Pharisees are too self-righteous to see what the crowd sees, to see what all creation sees. Instead, they are blaspheming their God. And then in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, Jesus goes to the temple. He cleanses all of it of, of the money scams and the things that made it a den of robbers. And then the people came to him and he healed them. And the kids all around the temple were so amazed at him that they were proclaiming him Messiah and King, shouting in verse 15, Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees were again enraged. They come to him and they say, are you really going to let them talk about you like this? Are you going to really let these kids praise you as the Messiah, Jesus? And Jesus says in verse 16, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Of course, Jesus knew that they had read this. That quote is from Psalm chapter 8. But what Jesus also knew, that the Pharisees knew, is that Psalm 8 was a psalm addressed to God. So here Jesus is making a direct claim to being God himself in the temple. And instead of taking a second and pausing to really think on these things, the Pharisees are mad. Mark chapter 11, verse 18, gives us a little extra detail to the story, saying that when the Pharisees had seen all this and they heard the words that Jesus spoke, they sought a way to destroy him, 
because they feared him. And we'll come back to verses 18 through 22 later. I'm going to save that for a little later in the lesson. So that brings us to Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. When the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, they had finally had enough. They're enraged at everything that's going on. And they ask in verse 23, by what authority do you do these things, Jesus? What gives you the right to do these things? And we remember the rest of the story. Jesus asks them the question in verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they want to say man, but they didn't because they didn't like John the Baptist either. But they can't say man because then the people will get mad because the people like John the Baptist. So they'll say from heaven. But no, they can't do that because then Jesus has them because then he'll say, well, then why didn't you accept him? And so they're trapped and they kind of get out of it by dragging their feet in the dirt and saying, well, I don't really know, Jesus. And so Jesus refuses to answer their question. And I think that's where we normally leave the story. It kind of has a nice little conclusion there at the end. And that's where we say, well, Jesus really owned the Pharisees. But that's not actually the end of the story. Because right after that, Jesus doesn't stop there. Right after that, he tells two parables to them. The first of which is the one that we're going to study today. The parable of the two sons. And that's really striking to me at least, because it seems to kind of come out of nowhere. It seems to kind of come out of this stalemate. But really, Jesus is addressing this same debate. The Pharisees are the recipient of this parable. So now that we know who is kind of behind this parable and why it's being told, we can actually look at what it, what's being talked about. So the parable has two sons, uh, a faithful son and an unfaithful son. And the faithful son shows no care in the world for his father at first. His father tells him to work in the vineyard and he says, mm, no, not interested, sorry. Which would not work very well in my household growing up. And I imagine that it would not work well for a lot of you guys. But all that to say, we would shame the first son for this. Whereas the second son, at first, seems to be the model citizen. He says, yes, sir, I will go. Ooh, he says, sir. What a good son. And if you were sitting in the room with these two sons when the father came to them and gave them their instructions, who would be the better son? It would be the second one, right? He minds his P's and Q's. He's respectful. He said, yes, sir. He treats his father with respect. That's a good son right there. But of course, we know the ending of the story. We've seen the result of all this. We've been given a glimpse into what the father sees, not just someone in the room with the sons, but the father himself. We've seen the end of the story because the son that seemed wicked actually did the will of his father and the model citizen, the son that everyone would have wanted, didn't. And notice the question that Jesus asks in verse 31, where he says, which of the two did the will of the father? 
He didn't ask, which is the good son or which is the better son? Because really, if you look at the story, neither one of them is truly the good son. This isn't the story of a wicked son and a good son. One was disrespectful and uncaring, shaming the father. And the other one, in a way, was even worse. He was a liar, disobedient, hypocritical. Neither is the good son, so to speak. So what's the difference between the two? The first son attempts to redeem himself in the end. He turns around, repents of his ways, and does the will of his father. But then Jesus really gets to the real thrust of the story He really goes for the jugular of the Pharisees in verses 31 and 32. And he says, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And that had to sting. You, put yourself, in the, put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees for a second. You are the religious elite of the land. You are the people that everyone else looks up to and says, those are the good guys. That's who I want to be like. Those are the righteous people. And yet, you aren't the ones who are doing the will of the Father. And if you don't shape up, you're going to miss the kingdom Altogether, you who are the holy ones, you who profess to be the righteous ones, if you don't repent, you're not going to make it to heaven. But you know who will? The people that you see as unclean, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the worst of the worst in the Pharisees' eyes. They will enter the kingdom because they saw God's will. And they saw what they were doing, and they repented, and they followed his will. So then there was a choice for the Pharisees, right? Did they heed the warning? Do they see, oh, well, we're this son that's not doing the Father's will. We've got to repent. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to change our ways. And well, we see the answer after Jesus' next parable. We're after Jesus' next parable, which we don't have time to read today. Verses 45 and 46 says, um, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, including the one that we just read, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They did not repent. They didn't even really seem to be listening at this point. They kind of go right by the message of the parable and just go straight to, well, we're mad at him. We're going to seek to arrest him. And ultimately, they would arrest him and they would kill Jesus. So they didn't heed the warning. But what about us? Do we heed the warning of this passage? And I want to answer that by going back to the questions that we looked at at the beginning of this lesson. What does it mean to be a Christian? And what does it mean to say that you're a Christian? And actually, I want to start with the second question. What does it mean to say that you're a Christian? 
Or maybe another way that I can put this is what does it mean to say that you're following God? And I think in the context of this passage, it's pretty clear what the answer is to that. What does it mean to say that you're a Christian? Not very much by itself. In fact, by itself, it just means nothing. The second son says that he will do the will of his father, remember? He says, yes, sir, I will go to the vineyard. I will do your work, father. But what did saying that actually accomplish? It may have looked good in the moment, may have sounded good to everyone's ears, but it didn't do anything. Saying that you're going to follow God by itself means nothing. Saying that you're a Christian by itself means nothing. Turn to me with uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven, and we'll look at verses twenty one through twenty three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Not everyone who declares Jesus as their Lord will make it to heaven. Saying that you're a Christian, saying that you're a follower of God will not save you eternally. And that's a warning that the Pharisees heard often. Matthew chapter 23 is the best example of this. Just a few chapters after our main passage for today. And we don't have the time to read this, so I'm just going to kind of put the outline of what Jesus says on the screen because it's a lot. And I'll put where it is in the chapter. That way, if you want to come back to it later, you can write it down and see it. Um, But here in Matthew chapter 23, oh, I forgot I had that slide. Here in Matthew chapter 23, these are the condemnations that Jesus gives to the scribes and Pharisees. Those who were supposedly the holy ones. In verses 1 through 4, they were condemned for being hypocrites and claiming to be examples of God-following men while actually doing nothing, like we read about today in Matthew chapter 21. And the results of this are seen in verses 13 through 15, where they are condemned because they drug everyone that they taught down to hell with them by their example. And in verses 5 through 7, they are condemned for having religion that worships only themselves while pretending to serve God. Verse 25 also says that they are self-indulging. In verses 16 through 22, there's a long section condemning them for putting their words, the traditions of men, in equal place and oftentimes over God's own word. And we hear the words of Matthew chapter 23 and we say, go get them, Jesus. Those Pharisees are terrible. I came across this study in 2014. A lot of you have probably seen it or heard it. Um, But it's from the Barna Group, which is a group that does a lot of research and surveys into where religion and American culture meet. 
And this survey, among other things, talked to hundreds of those who grew up Christian and that were 30 and under, and about half of them had left the church already. And so the answer is, why? Why are so many young people leaving the church? And I'm sure you've asked those questions to yourself over the years. And I'm going to throw up the, uh, the answers that these young people gave to why they had left the church. These are their top five answers. Number one, hypocrisy in church leaders. Number two, God is missing in the church. Number three, having doubts is deemed shameful. Number four, it's hard to decipher where God's will ends and tradition begins. And number five, the church doesn't care about others. And what do you notice about these two lists? Uh Uh-oh. A lot of it's the same list. Do you see hypocrisy in there? Number one on the left side. Number one on the right side, right there. Let's see, what else do we have? And I I would argue, really, that shaming those for having doubts and not caring about others, that's kind of in hypocrisy as well. What about selfish worship? Do you see that one in there? That might be a little harder to spy, but I would say that number two there, God being perceived as missing from church, and number five, the church not caring about others are simply symptoms of the the greater problem of selfishness in our religion. And do you see traditionalism in there? Right there, that's number four. Hard to decipher where God's will ends and tradition begins. So it's all there. It's all right there. And now none of this is to say that we're ever going to be able to completely stop people from leaving the church. Everyone has their own free will. That would be foolish to say. This also isn't to say that this study is perfect, because no study is. And I know that I cherry-picked the examples from Matthew 23. I know all this. But let me just say this. If you're claiming to be a Christian, and you're really doing what's on these two lists, you're not being a Christian. You're not actually following God. In fact, you're acting like the Pharisees. If you're claiming to follow God, but you're really pushing people farther away from the church, to the outside, you may look like a God-fearing person. You may even claim it. People may think you're religious, but heed Jesus' warning. You're no better than the Pharisees. You're no better than the second son. You're no better than the crowd that proclaimed Christ as the Messiah and then turned around and crucified him. And unfortunately, when I look at this list, I see myself on this list. And you probably see some of yourself on this list, too. So I want to spend the last few minutes of our lesson here talking about the first question. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? Is it, simple, is it, is it easy and simple enough to just say that you are? We can safely say no. After having looked at this parable, does being a really good person and having a lot of people respect you and thinking that you're religious make you a Christian? No, because of the example of the Pharisees here. So what actually makes you a Christian? Turn back to Matthew chapter 7 with me. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll go right back to verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And actually, we'll stop right there for right now. So who will enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. That's the requirement. You check that box or you don't. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means doing the will of God. And I think this is emphasized actually by the verses right before that. If you'll read verses 15 through 20 with me, another condemnation of men just like the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits, not by what they say, but by what they do. Back to Matthew chapter 21. Their fruits. So I don't think it's a coincidence then that the story that takes place right after the cleansing of the temple, but before this argument between Jesus and the Pharisees, is this like strange passage in verses 18 through 22. For the sake of what we're looking at today, we're just going to look at verses 18 and 19. Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, that is Jesus, he became hungry. And he saw a fig tree by the wayside and he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the tree withered at once. And it's just a weird story. I mean, there's like no other miracles, at least that I can think of, where Jesus does harm to anything. It just it should stick out in your mind. What is going on here? And it's not fully explained in the text itself. They kind of go to a conversation about faith and just kind of move on. And you're left saying, what in the world is happening here? But I think it comes to the life with the verses that we've mentioned today. Jesus cursed the fig tree as a sign because it didn't bear the fruit that it was supposed to. And so it had to be punished. And that's the point of this sign. That's the point of the parable of the fig tree in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. If you don't do what God says, you're only fit for destruction. That's the point of all of Jesus' conversations with the Pharisees. Stop saying that you're holy and actually be holy and bear fruit. And that's the point of the parable of the two sons. There will be those who claim to do what God wills, and there will be others who work in the vineyard, who bear the good fruit. Those who love God and keep his commandments. And so I ask you again, which son are you? I think we've all been both at certain times. Everyone who is here that has been baptized 
has been the first son at some point where we have all sinned and we told our heavenly father, I will not work for you. And then we see our ways and we repent and we actually chose to do the works of the father. That's what happens when you when you believe, repent and you're baptized. You choose to say, actually, father, I will do your works. So we've all been the first son at some point. We've all had a change of heart and repented. But I think we've also all had times where we claim to do the will of the Father. We took refuge in the fact that we're a Christian. That means we're doing the will of the Father, but we're actually not. We live like the Pharisees, pretending to be righteous, pretending not to struggle, pretending to be holy. But actually, we live lives of self-worship. We push people away from God. So I ask you for the last time today, which son are you? Are you a Christian or are you just saying that you are? And take the time to think about that because how sad would it be to lie to yourself and then to hear on the judgment day, depart from me, I never knew you. Let me offer a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed to our classes. Lord, we know that creation itself praises you. All that is around us praises you. Help us to look past ourselves and to see your works and to join in that praise. Lord, we love you, but help that not just be empty lip service. Help us to actually serve you. Help us to bear good fruit as individuals and as a congregation. Help us to honestly evaluate ourselves to see which son that we are. And if we aren't serving you as we should, help us to heed the warning of Matthew 21 and repent and turn to follow you in all things. Lord, help us enter your kingdom and help us bring as many others with us as we can. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.